Our psalm for the day is Psalm 8, and uh, I do have a handout with that psalm on it and miscellaneous notes. So if you don't have a handout, you might raise your hand. David is helping us out here. Thank you, David. While David's handing these out, uh, let me just make a few preliminary comments on, uh, on the Psalms. Uh, a few weeks ago, I introduced the Psalms under a title, Lining Up the Psalms. And there is a flow and a structure to the Psalms. And this summer, I've just uh, determined once again to try to get into the Psalms so that I understood it better and deeper. Uh, Last week, I, we were back at our home New York church, um, Central Presbyterian Church, that we were involved in before becoming involved here at the Advent, and I preached on Psalm 1. The first book of the Psalms goes roughly from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. The division of the Psalms is uneven. There's five books. The first one, 41 chapters, 41 Psalms. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are your introduction to the whole Psalter. The first one, very personal. The second Psalm, very political and, and social. And you'll notice that there's that kind of rhythm throughout the Psalms of personal and social, always keeping in view the big picture as well as the very personal picture. There's that kind of rhythm in the Psalms. For the last month or so, I've been working for myself personally, on Psalm 3 through 7. And the backstory for Psalm 3 through 7 is the Absalom conspiracy against King David. So Psalms 1 and 2, opening overture to the Psalter. Psalm 3 through 7, dealing with the establishment of David's kingdom, not at the beginning, though, but really toward the middle or the end where it's under threat by his own son. Really dynamic Psalms, 3 and 7, that have a parallel to God establishing his will in our lives as well. I think that's the parallel. God establishing his will in David's life in Israel, and God establishing his will in our lives. 3 through 7, praying through the struggle of that, and then Psalm 8, which we're going to look at now, is just like a breath of fresh air. It's like the night's over. It's like day. Um, it's a great vacation psalm. It's a psalm that's wonderful to sort of open up as a family on vacation. So I probably should have given this a lot earlier. huh? Um, it's a positive psalm. There's no hint of sin in this psalm. It's one of those very rare psalms where just all the way through, there's just not that tension between human fallenness and, and God's creative presence. It's the bold print on the... Uh, something about this distance here gives feedback. Okay. You'll notice that I really, when I teach, I'd like to be in the middle that doesn't do well for the front row, but uh, I'd like to get as close to people as possible, I guess, just uh, instinctively. Notice on the study guide, the bold print in the left column. 
We're going to start there. On both sides, we'll read the bold so you get the psalm. Lord, and Lord is Yahweh. I am. I am who I am. The most personal way God has referred to himself in salvation history. I am. I am our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. You may have memorized it as from the lips of children. You have ordained praise to silence the foe and the avenger. There's a lot of different translation work at that point, but it's certainly the same theme. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what are mere mortals? Or what is man? Or what is the son of man that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And then if you turn the page, verse 5 You have made them a little lower than the angels. And probably the right translation for that is not angels, but God. You've made them a little lower than God. There's quite a debate on that in scholarly circles, and it was thought that angels was probably scribally injected because it seemed more modest. We're a little lower than angels. But probably the more proper Hebrew translation is, You've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. See what a great creation care this particular psalm might be. This week we celebrate what the the 100th year of the National Park Service with some 59 national parks that have been designated. That's part of creation care. It's part of God's understand, our understanding of God's provision, setting aside these pristine wilderness uh, forests and so forth to be kept as they are for the preservation for the nation and for our enjoyment. And then the psalm ends on the same note that it began. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you turn the page back to the beginning, Derek Kinder is a wonderful Old Testament scholar, has a very brief little commentary on on the psalms, each one of them. And he writes this of Psalm 8. This psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he's done, and relating us and our world to him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. Now, at the heart of this psalm is a question. What are mere mortals that you are mindful of them? that you pay any attention to them? Or what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That's going to be the New Testament 
the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. That's going to be the New Testament translation of Psalm 8. That question, what is man that you are mindful of him, is raised explicitly two other times in Scripture. In Psalm 144, David asks the same question, but now with a pessimistic conclusion. David says, man is but a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. And then Job raises the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And he answers the question this way, give me a break. Stop paying so much attention to me. Will you please let up? So those are the two other places where this question, which is at the heart of the psalm, is raised. C.S. Lewis said of this psalm, again in that narrow column, the second quote, this short, exquisite lyric is simplicity itself, an expression of wonder at man and man's place in nature, and therefore at God who appointed it. God is wonderful, both as a champion or judge and as creator. Armand Nicolai, a clinical psychiatrist, you know, a psychologist, psychiatrist um, at Harvard for 30 years, taught a course comparing Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. And it was one of the most popular classes, electives at Harvard. And he wrote a book at the end of that 30-year career. Uh, and I have it on there, The Question of God, C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud debate God, love, sex, and the meaning of life. And I've heard Armand Nicolai speak, and he's just such a gracious, wonderful Christian man. And uh, the testimony must have been just very positive for this, uh, for this program in which he participated for so many years in just a really well-attended class. But he always begins that course with, the Socrates quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. And then he goes on to say, and it's at the top of your page in the right column, within the university, students and professors scrutinize every possible aspect of our universe, from the billions of galaxies to subatomic particles, electrons, quarks, but they assiduously avoid examining their own lives. In the wider world, we keep hectically busy and fill every free moment of our day with some form of diversion. Work, computers, television, movies, radio magazines, newspapers, sports, alcohol, drugs, parties. Perhaps we distract ourselves because looking at our lives confronts us with a lack of meaning, our unhappiness, our loneliness. And with the difficulty, the fragility, and the unbelievable brevity of life. And this is where Psalm 8 runs counter to that. It's, a, it's, it's opening the life up to, like a child, receiving life as a gift, meaning as a gift, the revelation of God as a gift. And that's why I think something of the heart of the psalm, maybe the most singular line in the psalm, in the Hebrew scriptures for the Israelites was, from the lips of children, 
You have ordained praise to silence the foe and the avenger. God gives up his testimony to children. Now, some of you have had the privilege of being at the birth of your child. In that very moment, I think that is most, one of the most tremendous moments to refute the nature alone thesis, hypothesis of life. Because in that moment of delivery, welcoming a new human being into this earthy historical life just sort of puts the lie to the idea, the reductionistic, mechanistic, nature alone thesis for life. Doesn't it? Have you been there? Have you experienced that? A few weeks ago, our daughter and son-in-law who pastor at church in San Diego were, were here visiting at the Advent, and they took Micah, who's just under two, up to the nursery um, or toddler's room. And uh, Micah goes in, and a guy up there, I don't know his name, um, but you would know him maybe, um, he's holding two crying babies. And Micah comes right up to him, says, I'm Micah. And there's just something about the human person that emerges in relationship of identity and understanding that, to me, speaks so much more of the reductionistic thesis of man being just the sum total of his neurons, his biochemical reality that we really are made with soul, that we are human beings that bear witness to the reality of our creator. And that's wonderful. That's powerful. I am Micah. I am Yahweh. And there's a residency between these two that we would not want to deny that kind of singular personhood to God any more than I would want to deny the singular personhood of you. Just as there is only one you, there is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that truth resonates with us. Yeah, we may spend a lot of time trying to refute it and argue it and debate it, but I would... I think that the truest, maybe most powerful testimony from the lips of children, you have ordained praise to silence the foe and the avenger. And that, I think, is something of the, you find in that something of the DNA of salvation history. Because that notion of children laying claim to praise connects with the incarnation the reality of the Christian life beginning with the wonderful revelation of the word made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation, the reality that God became human. And that that becomes, in a sense, the, the, the ultimate throne, the ultimate testimony 
of God's presence among us. Such a simple lyric, Psalm 8. Beautiful, but resonating with these profound truths that are part of our experience. It is thought to be, and I think correctly so, that it's a hymn to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. You see the uh, explicit connection between the two. Notice in the box there a quote from Eugene Peterson, which is a different orientation, I think, than we often bring to the Psalms. The Psalms were not prayed by people trying to understand themselves. Now, I don't know, I, I do pray the Psalms trying to understand myself. But I think that this is a testimony to the fact of the covenant people of God not being like the autonomous, lonely, Western person. But they are raised in a context that just doesn't question God. The fool has said in his heart or her heart that there is no God. And the Psalms take as a, an axiomatic assumption that God is real and God has revealed and God has spoken. The Psalms were not prayed by people trying to understand themselves. They are not the record of people searching for the meaning of life. They were prayed by people who understood that God had everything to do with them. And even maybe the testimony of that may help us to rest, settle into the conviction that God indeed is real and God has revealed himself. Now rest in that and pray the Psalms, enter into them. I've, I've made mention here of the incarnation and that tie-in to uh, through the lips of children you have ordained praise. And obviously something to follow up on would be how Jesus used children. This is one of the things that we love about the Advent is the role that Christian education plays at the very beginning level of human life and the regard that you have for children here in this body of believers is, is wonderful. And it ties in, I think, too, with the Corinthian church when, when the Apostle Paul said, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. There's an intentional understanding within the incarnation and then within the body of Christ, within the growth of the gospel, that God comes from below to convince people of his reality, not from the power structures. The second paragraph to the bottom, the psalmist is impressed with the greatness of God and the littleness of man. The first time I heard that was in a chapel at Wheaton College and John Stott, the really well-known Anglican Bible expositor, pastor of All Souls Church in London for so many years, and just one of our real statesmen who's now with the Lord, but he spoke and preached on Psalm 8. And he talked about the greatness of God and the littleness of man. And when you look at creation, wow, are we small. 
we are on a very media we are on a very insignificant planet in a very mediocre galaxy among millions of galaxies that are millions of year, light years from each other. And when you begin to paint that cosmic picture, you begin with David under the stars looking up and saying, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than God, a little lower than the angels and crowned him with honor and glory. Uh, against the cosmos, we are so small. But when compared to God, not that, which is ironic, isn't it? This is paradoxical. When compared to the cosmos, we're so small. But when compared to God, we're significant. It wouldn't be just the opposite. But instead, the comparison is that we have now gained by the relationship with the living created, creator God, we have gained in stature. We have gained in significance. Nobody's on the scale of creation. But now someone endowed and designated, bestowed upon great value, great dignity, stewards of creation because of God's designation. And all of that, I remember John Stott stressing the Augustine's line that the secret to the Christian life was humility, humility, humility. And the nature that looking at Psalm 8 behooves us to be humble in relationship to God and humble in relationship to the stewardship responsibilities that he has given to us. And that picks up the Chesterton quote on the bottom of that right column. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Man, male and female, was meant to be doubtful about himself but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. I think Chesterton nails it there. We were meant to be doubtful about ourselves, finding our confidence and our sense of assertion in God, and we have done the opposite now. Um, this is something that we could dwell on. I won't, but on the, if you turn the page, British physicist and biochemist Francis Crick, who was, received the Nobel Prize for participating in um, discovering the molecule structure of DNA, and he wrote a book entitled The Astonishing Hypothesis. And he's one who does not believe that if you define the person mechanistically, neurologically alone, a nature alone point of view, he doesn't believe that's reductionistic. But I think that that's just a, a, a verbal defense that has no merit. He writes, the astonishing hypothesis is that you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, are in fact no more than a behavior, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. 
And this picks up with Richard Dawkins, uh, who's been mentioned here, I think, many times, arguing that the perceived need for God comes from our Darwinian instinct for survival. Dawkins contends that the useful programmability and gullibility of a child's brain accounts for God talk being passed down from generation to generation. So what we need for survival is just mixed up with superstitious fantasies. And over against the Crick and Dawkins kind of perspective, I look at somebody like C.S. Lewis, who you could not argue was gullible and was quite convinced of his atheism and came to Christ later in life. And he didn't ask who when he was searching. He asked what. And he said in this progression of thought, it brought him really to the region of awe. For I thus understood that in the deepest solitude there is a road out of the self, a commerce with something which by refusing to identify with the object of the senses or anything whereof we have biological or social need or anything imagined or any state of our own minds proclaims itself as sheerly objective. And that sheerly objective reality is God. It's interesting, he describes in Surprised by Joy him sitting on the bus and with no sense of urgency or fear or anything, simply coming to the conclusion as he sat there on the bus that after all of his searching, all of his questioning, all of his debating, he needed to make a decision. And he said, it was like I, I, I was beginning to take my armor off, unbuckling my armor. And he said, you know, an atheist can never be too, uh, too guarded. And as he's unbuckling his armor, he realizes that it's not a question of all or nothing. It's just a question of all. If God is God, then my entire being, all of me, all of the time, is under this lordship, under this God. The Bible offers a beautifully balanced estimate of the human person. When compared to creation, we're tiny, but astonishingly, when we're compared to God, our significance grows. C.S. Lewis, uh, 12 years after his, uh, his conversion, Wrote, uh, well, wrote a sermon that was given at St. Mary's at Oxford entitled The Weight of Glory. And in that sermon, he contemplates what it is now to be bestowed upon this kind of glory that's celebrated in Psalm 8. And the image that came to his mind was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in 1953 when that small young girl sat there on a throne and this heavy crown was placed on her head. And he said, in a way, Psalm 8 celebrates that we are vice regents, royal powers with God, with respect to his creation. You have crowned him with honor and glory. 
The same language that would be used for coronation is used for our responsibility. It's a beautiful, positive, powerful picture. Now, uh, we have a, a few minutes, and I should end on this note, how the New Testament picks up on Psalm 8. Because Psalm 8, left in the Old Testament by itself, simply speaks of humanity under God. Endowed, bestowed upon by the grace of God, this wonderful responsibility of stewardship. A meditation on Genesis 1, 26 to 27. But now Psalm 8 is explicitly referred to three times in the New Testament. And the quote from Hebrews at the very bottom of your left column on the second page, the author of Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and he writes, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? A son of man that you care for him, you made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And who is he talking about? He's talking explicitly about Jesus Christ. You and I can look at Psalm 8 and say, well, humanity doesn't fulfill that responsibility that God has given. Humanity has failed at that. We have not been good stewards. We have not recognized I am who I am, the Lord and how majestic is his name. We have not done that very well. The person who did that very well is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews sees, the fulfillment of Psalm 8 in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of Man. Made a little lower than God. Now well, you'd bring in that Chalcedonian confession to understand what all that means. Fully God, fully human, truly God and truly man. But Jesus Christ fulfills that. And that's what the author of Hebrews sees, that Psalm 8 now has the means by which humanity can be restored to the fulfillment of that divine vision for our stewardship responsibilities. We don't see everything under his feet yet. And that's the other part that is quoted in Ephesians and Corinthians. We wait for the culmination of the promise that God has given of bringing everything under his control. And that's how the New Testament takes Psalm 8, lifts it up and understands it, that the fulfillment of what is promised here and celebrated will come true in Jesus Christ. The second paragraph on the right column, let me just read that. Peter Craigie's comment. Uh, Peter Craigie, a wonderful Old Testament scholar, died in a car crash. Uh, he only got through the first 50 Psalms. He did them so exceptionally, I wish he had uh, survived and gone on to do 50 through 150. But Peter Craigie concluded, in one sense, this is quite a new meaning referring to the Hebrews 2 meaning. Peter Craigie, the second paragraph from the bottom on the right column. In one sense, this is quite a new meaning, not evidently implicit in the psalm in its original meaning and context, and yet in another sense, it is a natural development of the thought of the psalm. For the dominion of which the psalmist spoke may have had theological reality, 
yet it did not always appear to have historical reality in the development history of the human race. The historical reality, according to Paul and the author of the epistle of Hebrews, is and will be fulfilled in the risen Christ. So you have the kingdom of nature and the kingdom of grace coming together and fulfilled as the New Testament takes and interprets Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Name representing who God is and what he has done and everything about him. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children, you have ordained praise to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds of the sea and the fish of the sea and all swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I think a beautiful psalm filled with the depth of salvation history embedded in it. Any comments or questions you have in the last few moments? Well, I was just reminded of Paul's uh, expression of us of adoption. That, you know, who is God mindful of us that he would adopt us and give us our full, his full inheritance? Good comment, David. Just curious, is Psalm 8 anybody here's favorite psalm? <laughs> Tommy? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, and with Stephen's um, sermon earlier, talking about with the electron on uh, the particle, and uh, and then you have the Crick and the Dawkins quote. It's just interesting. Right now, all that's going on with how all this science, which is as Christians we know is the just the study of God's creation, is really pointing towards there being a God. Um, and a lot of scientists are really coming to that conclusion. Um, you know, um, the Large Hadron Collider, all that's going on with the Higgs boson particle and everything, and the, you know, it's been dubbed the God particle, and they've discovered that. And, you know, just in a micro scale, you look at the, the smallest parts of us in the universe, and it points to God. You look, you zoom out, you look to the biggest parts, and it points to God. And it's just, it's interesting how that's all happening right now. Whereas some people, you know, Dawkins, they would use science against God, but Right. So many people, it's really pointing people to. Tommy's point is that on both the macro and the micro scale, science really points. Science really points toward God, and I would say that Psalm eight 
works really in, in two ways. One is that it really does sanctify some of your professions. Those of you who explore science and nature and medicine, I think you, it's a holy vocation. You're called to look into God's creation. And to me, that's, that's just as, that's a missionary within God's kingdom work. I think it's beautiful. The second is, I actually think it's easier now to believe in God than it would be in David's day. Because we understand, one, our insignificance in the light of the cosmos in ways that could never have been understood then. And I think the beauty, the, uh, the wonderful creativity that we find in nature uh, points to this. So science keeps building that testimony, I think. Good point, Tommy. Thanks for bringing it out. Don? Hey, Doug, is it, I know it's overly simplistic, but just listening to you talk this morning and reading this, um, it pushes me back to um, Genesis 1 and 2, um, God's creation, the way he intended it to be, our relationship with him. It drives me forward to the end of the story in Revelation, where once again we'll see that. And then it gives a real sense of how then should we live in the midst of that, and, you know, somewhere in the already but the not yet, uh, with this incredible recognition and awe of who he is and who we are and our need for him. It's just a, it seems like a great kind of a swing or hymn song. It is. And it, it really, there's a sacramental cast to all of life. I mean, we, we worship by taking the bread, drinking the cup. That's the sacrament. Baptism is a sacrament. But there's a sacramental cast to all of life. I think we should be infusing in our children the sense of how wonderful and positive God's creation is that has been infused with uh, such meaning and significance. And we participate in that. We're part of the theater of that drama. And uh, it's, it's wonderful. Well, we should pray and go to worship. Lord God, thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, we do praise you. We give you thanks. Uh, thank you for speaking to us in this psalm by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. I ask for your blessing on my sisters and brothers in Christ this week in their holy vocations. Amen.